Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today. In moments, we'll hear from James Whitman on the American origins of Nazi race law. And then Alex Gurevich will talk about the right to strike and the prevailing legal order. First, James Whitman. Whitman, a professor of comparative and foreign law at Yale, is author of Hitler's American Model, The United States and the Making of Nazi Race Law, published in February by Princeton University Press. While the influence of American practice on Nazis is not unknown, for example, Hitler and his colleagues were inspired by our Indian reservations when they conceived of the concentration camps, Whitman's book is a study of what the Nazis learned from U.S. racial classification schemes and our legal culture in general. While this might not shock people on the left, it will make liberals and other conventional types squirm. Whitman is also the author of a 2003 book, Harsh Justice, Criminal Punishment and the Widening Divide Between America and Europe, a study of just what it is in American culture that makes our criminal justice system so harsh and degrading. We discuss that only in passing, but it's a worthy topic in itself. Whitman was first a historian, and then he became a lawyer, so this dual experience is perfect for the topic of the U.S. influence in the Nazis. James Whitman. Welcome. Let's just start with a couple of general issues. Nazis, despite their images as uh, bloodthirsty barbarians, uh, were uh, actually quite learned in their approach to law. They're very much by-the-book uh, types. Uh, could you talk a bit about the, the Nazi legal culture? Well, some of them were certainly by-the-book legal types. I, I don't want to drop the term barbarian myself in talking about the Nazis, um, or maybe even bloodthirsty. But it is very much the case, as you say, that, that uh, Germany was a, was a world full of extraordinarily learned people, uh, including learned lawyers, many of whom, for what are somewhat mysterious reasons, were drawn to Nazism. Among the Nazi lawyers, there was a, a real conflict between the radicals who wanted to abandon traditional approaches to the law and the people who were, to use your phrase again, by the book lawyers, who, although they were Nazis, and let me just say, we're talking about Nazi bastards here, uh, barbarians, if you prefer the term, who, although they were Nazis, although they were on board for the Nazi program, nevertheless wanted to maintain traditional standards uh, of uh, legal reasoning and even rule of law. In developing their really horrific legal system, they looked uh, to the United States, you know, not necessarily something they're going to copy word for word, but uh, the U.S., I, I believe you say several times, is uh, the first place they always turn for inspiration when it came to uh, drafting uh, racial, racial legislation, especially. It sure is. That's, that's what I discovered as I wrote this book. Um, it was news to me, I have to say. Uh, the U.S. really, in the early 20th century, really was the leading racist jurisdiction in the world. Now, I mean, there were plenty of other racist countries in the world, of course. Uh, and in particular, there was a lot of racist law uh, in the British colonial world, for reasons that, again, deserve more discussion than I give them in the book, I think. But among those countries and in the world more broadly, the U.S. really stood out. This was in part, of course, uh, on account of Jim Crow, segregation in the South. That's what we remember now. But it's very important to emphasize that there was a lot more to U.S. racist law than just Jim Crow segregation. Uh, there were, for example, U.S. immigration laws, which were designed to keep out Asians and Eastern Europeans, Southern Europeans. Uh, Hitler himself praised U.S. immigration law, uh, as did many other uh, far-right wingers in Europe uh, in the early 20th century. There were various forms of second-class citizenship law, applying, for example, to Filipinos and to Native Americans. Uh, the Nazis knew about all of this stuff and took a real interest. And they were not so much interested in Jim Crow, and as you point out, uh, the... Uh populations, the subject populations are rather different. Jews are often integrated into German society and uh, fairly well off, whereas black people in the United States were uh, quite marginalized and very poor. Um, where did the Germans turn for uh, their understanding of, of how to deal with the Jewish population? It's true that the, the Nazis never introduced Jim Crow of the American kind. There's a particularly interesting passage uh, in a, a planning meeting for the Nuremberg Laws that I spent time on uh, in the book, in which one leading Nazi lawyer explains why Jim Crow is not suitable for Nazi Germany. It's for the reason you just gave. Uh, he says, Jim Crow, a segregation of that kind, can work very well if you're dealing with a population that's already poor and oppressed. But if you're dealing with wealthy, well-integrated folks like the German Jews, you have to use more draconian measures. It's really extraordinary to read this stuff, I have to say. Uh, there, there were other Nazis, certainly, who were in favor of bringing something like Jim Crow uh, into, into Germany. 
But the Nuremberg Laws themselves from 1935 didn't introduce segregation of the American kind. Um, they took other tax, which we can talk about, although still they took tax that were borrowed, uh, or at least influenced by, I want to be careful in saying this, uh, influenced by uh, American law. Uh, in particular, this involves American anti-miscegenation law. Before we get to that, you mentioned that some Nazis admired Lincoln, especially the early Lincoln who dreamed of deporting the black population. And their initial plan for the Jews was not extermination, but uh, to drive them out of the country one way or the other. Talk some about the evolution of, of the, the, the uh, German attitude towards how to treat um, their Jews. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, it's, it's easy for us to forget that in the early 1930s, the Holocaust was not yet on the horizon. You know, it was, it was at a minimum not a practical possibility for the Nazis to imagine mass murder, and they didn't talk about mass murder. Their aim was, precisely as you say, to drive the Jews to emigrate. They say this over and over again, and it is indeed the case, disturbing as it is to say it, that the Nazi literature, in speaking of the United States in particular, pointed to Lincoln, and not only to Lincoln, but also to Jefferson. Uh, in the early 19th century, it was very common among leading American statesmen to insist that there had to be, we don't usually say deportation, but resettlement uh, of the black population in, in the U.S., either resettlement to Africa, I think Lincoln had a plan uh, of resettlement in Central America. But it was quite a commonplace that, as Jefferson put it, the two races cannot possibly coexist in the same country. Uh, that, uncomfortable as it is to say, was much the view that the Nazis held in the early 1930s, too, so that the American example seemed a lot less alien to them than we might wish. The Nazis um, developed a certain degree of difficulty defining Jews. Uh, the U.S. one-drop rule was too harsh for them. How do they think through the definition of Jews? Isn't that something? Uh, yeah, it's true. When they looked at American law, they, in fact, disturbing as it is to discover this, uh, found American law to be too harsh in some respects, and in particular when it came to the one-drop rule and other American definitions of who counted as black. Uh, not only as black, I should say, this, the, the same sorts of problems from the American point of view also existed when it came to defining Asians, often called Mongols at the time, uh, or Native Americans. American states, 30 of which had anti-miscegenation law that involved these kinds of questions, American states had really extraordinarily draconian approaches to the definition of who counted as a member of which race, uh, the most draconian version of which was the one-drop rule found in some states. That is the rule according to which anybody with one drop of black blood counted as black. Even the most radical Nazis were not willing to go anywhere near that far, <laughs> as it were. The most radical definition that the Nazis proposed from 1933 would have characterized anybody with a single Jewish grandparent as Jewish. Uh, the eventual rules that emerged with the Nuremberg Laws were much less far-reaching than that. Basically, half-Jews, that is, persons with only two Jewish grandparents, would only count as Jews from the Nazi point of view if they otherwise married Jews or, or uh, engaged in Jewish worship. Uh, along with a couple of other provisions. Uh, that's nothing compared to what you see in the American states. Nothing compared to what you see in the American states. And when the Nazis looked in particular at the one-drop rule, or the Nazi literature, I'll say, uh, when the Nazi literature looked at the one-drop rule, they described it unbelievably as inhumane. Yeah, you quote a, uh, I believe it's a textbook for uh, young students, which uh, the the, uh, the hardness of American law was denounced. Isn't it something? Yeah, that, that's the, uh, that's a, it's, it's for English teachers. Because when you taught English, you, you know, you were going to have to introduce your English language students to Nazi values and, and, and train them to understand the English-speaking world from the Nazi point of view. What about the Nazi attitudes towards the United States in general? I mean, they certainly uh, admired our uh, pioneering efforts in eugenics and racial taxonomy. But on the other hand, uh, they were very suspicious of our tradition of liberal democracy. How did they reconcile all that? Uh, not very easily. <laughs> not that we have either. And not that we have either, exactly. Uh, yeah, the Nazis were, of course, aware that there was an awful lot about the American legal tradition that they not only rejected but despised, uh, and that they uh, described with great contempt, uh, especially the constitutional tradition as embodied in the 14th Amendment, uh, and more broadly, American ideas of equality. They saw the United States as torn in more by, by two different, as one Nazi writer put it, shaping forces. Uh, on the one hand, uh, egalitarianism, on the other hand, racism. And they were right, as you say. I mean, American, thoughtful American commentators still see the United States in the same terms. Um, but they certainly did not think the United States had created the kind of racist paradise they meant to create in Germany. They just, as the literature said, uh, thought of the United States as a country that had taken the first steps 
on a road that it was now the mission of Nazi Germany to uh, to, to walk to the final, uh, on which the Nazi, Nazi Germany was going to walk the final miles on the creation of a new, healthy, racist order. And they even sent a delegation of lawyers over here to study us, right? Uh, well, they did early in the 20th century to study American anti-miscegenation law. There was one lawyer in particular, I think, if I've, if I've reconstructed the facts correctly, which I think I have. There's one particular Nazi lawyer uh, whose knowledge of American law is at the source of the most important uh, Nazi instances of, of American influence on the Nazis. Uh, this was a guy named Heinrich Krieger, who was a young Nazi law student who was an exchange student at the University of Arkansas Law School in 1934 and who brought back uh, a lot of information about American law, which he then published in influential articles and books. Now, an aspect of this that Americans might not think about is uh, how uh, the developing uh, U.S. developing a colonial system abroad uh, introduced the notion of second-class citizens, which the Nazis found very curious. Could you talk about that development? They did, and they weren't the only one. So uh, in the wake of the Spanish-American War in 1898, the U.S. acquired something the U.S. had never had namely colonial possessions uh, in the Philippines, which I've mentioned before, in Puerto Rico, and a few other locations, especially in the Pacific. Um, this forced American lawyers to confront a real dilemma. The American Constitution presupposes that all inhabitants of the United States are citizens. But there was no appetite in the U.S. for making uh, Filipinos or, for that matter, Puerto Ricans at first citizens. Uh, and as a result, American lawyers began to craft, as you say, a form of second-class citizenship, a category of what they called non-citizen nationals. Uh, this was of tremendous interest in Europe long before the Nazis came along. So uh, European far-right-wingers were very interested in this, uh, these American innovations in second-class citizenship law already at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and the Nazis, to that extent, were simply participants in a, in a, in a long-standing tradition. It's a little bit difficult to tell exactly what the Nazis uh, were relying upon in the early literature for one straightforward and ironic reason, which is that the leading far right-wing book on American second-class citizenship was by a Jew. Uh, that went back to 1908, and citations to Jewish scholars were not permitted in Nazi Germany, which makes it difficult to, to work out in detail exactly how the lines of influence ran in, in this particular case. The general system in the South, and people have described it as fascist. It was a one-party state uh, with uh, a militia closely tied to the state, the Klan. Um, what about that idea that the South is a fascist state? It was a commonplace in the, in the 1920s, 1930s, not only among Nazi commentators, but others too, um, for the reasons that you've just given. The, uh, the South, the uh, solid democratic South, which is now, of course, yielded to the solid Republican South for the most part. Uh, the solid Democratic South really looked like a one-party state. The Klan, as you say, was engaged in just the kind of paramilitary violence that fascist movements were engaged in. Uh, and it seemed to many observers that there was something that might be called fascism. Now, there were debates about it, uh, particularly for a very interesting reason, characteristic of these kinds of questions. Uh, the South, as American observers, sorry, as foreign observers said, didn't have what the Nazis had, namely a really strong state. What you saw in the South was a much more fragmented, localized, non-state-directed form of racism. And in that respect, the U.S. looked different then, just as it looks different now. We tend to have much less toleration for strong state power than the Europeans do. I'm speaking with James Whitman, a professor of law at Yale and author of Hitler's American Model, The United States and the Making of Nazi Race Law, published by Princeton. Uh, the American law was touted, it seems, most enthusiastically by the most radical Nazis, like uh, Freisler, who uh, seems like quite a character. Uh, did you talk about Freisler? He was really uh, quite a figure. He really is. Freisler was the, later on, uh, after the period that I talk about in the book, Freisler was the president of the Nazi People's Court. Those who are curious and can follow German can watch videos of him if they like. He's the uh, paradigm of a brutal authoritarian judge, a really fascistic judge, uh, just an extraordinarily terrifying figure uh, who threw over anything anybody would have regarded as a sort of rule of law norms that ought to govern judicial behavior. Uh, and he was, as you say, an enthusiast for American law. This shows up in the, uh, in the evidence that I present in the book. Uh, he was an enthusiast not only for uh, American racist legislation of the kind that I've described, but also for the American style of jurisprudence. European judges generally regard themselves as uh, bound in highly developed ways by written texts. Uh, American common law judges, by contrast,
contrast, of course, exercise all kinds of authority, all kinds of authority uh, that doesn't necessarily grow out of any particular written legal text. They're creative, innovative, all the things that we love about them. They don't feel themselves to be restricted uh, in the way European judges do by the existing legal order, and Freisler thought that was great. <laughs> he says of American jurisprudence, this would suit us perfectly. Yeah, I, I want to return to that, that theme in a bit because your, your contrast of common law and uh, the, the European style code systems is very interesting. But before I get there, I was, as I was reading your book, um, the, the difficulties that Nazis had in uh, defining what a Jew was and the difficulties or the many varieties uh, of, of definition that American law has come up with over the years of what black people were. Uh, Remind me of Barbara Fields' uh, work where she, she says that there's no such thing as race or racism in the abstract. It's always defined through practice, whether by law or you know, active discrimination or whatever. And it, it, it just seemed to me that, the, that this effort at definition was kind of like making law on the fly. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, I think it's true in general and true of the Nazis in particular, um, and that they were aware of it. Again, Freisler is, 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 a, is a prime example. Freisler, in the, in the discussions that I quote in the book, says, alongside other radical Nazis, that the decision about who counts as a member of which race is a political decision. It's not a scientific decision. Uh, these guys speak in exactly the same terms that the most sophisticated, thoughtful social scientists speak today in the United States. They say, well, this is a socially constructed category, but as Nazis, they think that the social construction is really ought to be, as they say, a political construction. That is, we will define those persons as Jews uh, uh, whose, whose definition as Jews serves the purposes of the Nazi order, and it is a political decision. In the cases where uh, there were only two Jewish grandparents, uh, whether one decided to live as a Jew made a difference to the Nazis? You could sort of reject your racial inheritance by whether, behavior? Whether you had married, a, a, that is the person in question, the, half, the person with two Jewish grandparents had married another Jew or practiced the Jewish religion, although they, the Nazis disagreed, if you look deep in the literature, about exactly why that should be the rule. Um, the moderate Nazi lawyers took the view that persons of half-Jewish descent who married another Jew had thereby revealed their inclinations or their, their readiness to associate themselves with Jews, uh, whereas the nastier, more radical Nazis said that those who did that showed that the strength of Jewish blood was deeper inside them, that they were biologically driven to do it. So there wasn't complete agreement about that question among the Nazis. You make an argument uh, that uh, egalitarianism in the U.S. Uh, really uh, was not merely coexistent with, but in some ways depended upon notions of racism. And the same for uh, Hitler, uh, creating an egalitarian Germany for all Germans as long as the, uh, the non-Germans were excluded. Could you uh, talk about that? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, so uh, here I'm echoing arguments made by a lot of American historians these days. Uh, Edmund Morgan from Yale famously made an argument along these lines uh, back in the 1970s. And, and others talk about it now, too. The, to understand the argument, what we have to recognize is that in the, the past ages, it was very difficult to imagine an egalitarian society, very, very difficult to imagine an egalitarian society. Everybody took it for granted that there had to be nobles and commoners or something like that, some people on top and some people on the bottom. When you finally see the creation of an egalitarian society of a kind in the United States, it's distinctly an egalitarian uh, society for white people. And indeed, the first American naturalization statute says America is open to persons, free white persons. Why did they define it that way? I think what we have to understand, as Morgan said, as others have said, is the following. It's very difficult to create an egalitarian order that makes rich and poor that puts rich and poor on the same level, unless you can define somebody else as still belonging to the lower orders. And for that reason, you see this pattern in the United States really throughout the 18th century and throughout the 19th century too, the tendency to say this is what uh, Americans like, for example, Australians called a free white democracy uh, in which all white persons counted as, as equal, but at the expense of somebody else. Uh, my sense, at least, is that the sources for that kind of reasoning lie very deep in human psychology, very deep in human psychology. And yes, indeed, I think the same pattern characterizes the Nazi movement as well. What the Nazis claimed is that the, they, the Nazis, unlike the communists, would not redistribute wealth. They wouldn't do anything like that, but that they would redistribute honor, as they often said. They would guarantee the honor of every German as they defined 
Germans, uh, of every racial Aryan. But once again, this could only be done at the expense of some other group, and in particular the Jews in this case. Uh, so that the, the pattern of Nazi egalitarianism, and it really was a kind of Nazi egalitarianism, crazy in many ways, really does look like the pattern of American egalitarianism. And towards the end of the book, you uh, contrast uh, the U.S. common law tradition with, uh, you talked a little bit about this, but I'd like you to develop it some more, uh, the, the U.S. common law tradition with European code-centered uh, tradition. Now, here in the U.S., we're used to this battle of the strict, strict constructionists versus, you know, people, le- judges legislating for the bench. What's the, the point you're trying to make by contrasting those two systems? You know, I, I don't want to get too deeply into the way lawyers debate the problem of strict constructionism or, or originalism or any of the rest of those those things. Uh, what I what I would say is that as a matter of, as it were, the culture of judging, if you can say that, um, European judges, classically and, and down to this day, learn of kind of a cultural approach to judging in which it's assumed that they simply cannot exercise any kind of creativity, that they will have overstepped the bounds of their authority if they innovate in any way from the bench. Uh, most American judges, of course, in some way think the same thing and, and don't think of themselves as innovating from the bench. Nevertheless, within the common law tradition, there is a strong, a much stronger sense, or at least there's the, the value of uh, the cultural orientation toward not overstepping authority is much less deeply inculcated uh, than it is among European judges. As a result, the common law really is, not only as a matter of judging, but more broadly, uh, of an extraordinarily creative system by contrast with what you see uh, in continental Europe or elsewhere in the world. And that's sometimes just a wonderful thing. I, you know, I, I give one example in the book. I've written about it elsewhere. American contract law is extraordinarily innovative. Uh, and that's been uh, spectacularly helpful for the rise of biotech industries in the U.S., for example. Um, but the creativity doesn't always serve noble ends. Uh, no, no, no scientific technique always serves uh, noble ends. The same American creativity also drove the creation of racist legislation in the early 20th century. That's the racist legislation that seemed so uh, innovative and inspiring to the Nazis. And the same kind of creativity also played a role then and does now in American criminal justice uh, with what I think are, are, are you know, tragic consequences. Well, but part of what, and this takes me to uh, the, the uh, topic of your other book, the growth of sentencing guidelines, the rigidity, uh, the, uh, the intent of legislators uh, in Congress and in state legislatures to remove uh, judicial discretion in sentencing. Um, that seems like the opposite of common law. Um, it is in many ways the opposite of common law. The story is a very complicated one. The The best way to understand it, the way we talk about it ordinarily uh, in legal uh, law schools, uh, is is the following. It's true that there was a huge effort with uh, determinate sentencing to limit judicial discretion. The problem is that the criminal justice system always has to tolerate some exercise of discretion somewhere in the system for reasons that I could go on about. But if you get the discretion, as we often say, the criminal justice system is a hydraulic system. It's like a water balloon. If you squeeze it at one point, it gets bigger at another point. What we say in particular about determinate sentencing is that although judicial discretion was at least reduced, if not eliminated, the discretion of prosecutors grew. That is, once the judge has no choice, because there's a mandatory minimum, but to sentence the defendant to, let's say, 25 years in prison under the Rockefeller laws, all of the action is uh, in the decision of the prosecutor whether or not to bring the charge in the first place. That matters a lot, uh, because the same sort of open-ended creativity, the same sort of, the same absence of a sense of being bound um, by professional norms is found among prosecutors in the U.S. as is found among judges. Um, so that the prosecutors exercise their discretion uh, in ways that are difficult for people outside the United States to imagine. The problem is exacerbated by the fact that prosecutors in the U.S. are run for office. They're political officers. That's inconceivable in the rest of the world. Um, so that what's happened is not that the discretion has been taken out of the system, but that the discretion has been shifted to a different and arguably more dangerous actor uh, in the American system. And I was struck, also you, you said that uh, three strike styles laws uh, were uh, also common in Nazi Germany, that people were judged to be criminals, not that they had committed crimes, but they're in some essential sense criminals. This is one of those things that the U.S. and, and, and the Nazis share. That's exactly right. The, the, those sorts of statutes are what are called habitual offender statutes. Um, uh, and you describe it perfectly. Uh, normally in uh, contemporary Western criminal law, we, we, the view that we take, for better or for worse, uh, is that we punish acts and not persons. Uh, we don't convict you because you're a thief. We convict you because you committed an act of theft. Uh, three strikes statutes and other habitual offenders, uh, offender statutes punish the person rather than the act. 
in Europe these days, those sorts of habitual offenders statutes are regarded as completely unacceptable, precisely because uh, Europeans remember the experience of Nazism. This is regarded as one of the most important lessons to grow out of that terrible time uh, among European lawyers. We don't see things that way in the United States, and in that respect, uh, and I'm afraid in others, our criminal justice system is a lot closer to the Nazi system than one would like. And at the end of the book, you say uh, a study of these parallels between the U.S. And, and the Nazis should do is also make us look at ourselves. What does this experience tell us about ourselves? Well, you know, I mean, of course, there's one easy, correct, and important lesson to draw from all of this, um, but it's not the one I want to draw most. The easy, correct, and important lesson is that the sort of, of racism that we associate these days with the alt-right and other things that have seem to be re-emerging in force on the American scene, that the history of that those sorts of attitudes goes very, very far back. This is deeply rooted in the American tradition, and it is important to say that. And I hope I do say it. As a law professor, though, I do want to emphasize a little more the importance of American legal culture in just the ways that we've been discussing uh, in the past few minutes. American law was attractive to the Nazis because it was then, as it is now, highly politicized law with very relatively little attachment to the sorts of rule of law norms that have historically governed in uh, in Western Europe. And that's a big problem. It's an especially big problem for the criminal justice system because the parallels between what went on in Nazi Germany and our criminal justice system uh, really run disturbingly deep. But it's a problem arguably much more broadly than that too. Uh, and that's what I'd like us to get most out of the history of this episode. Uh, the episode is a dramatic and disturbing example of how American aspects of the American legal culture that we really treasure in the U.S. can go disastrously wrong, uh, and I hope we learn something from reading about this experience for that reason. Just the way you phrase that, and then I noticed this several times in the book, you seem a little defensive making these arguments about the U.S. I mean, did you get a lot of pushback from like colleagues and reviewers uh, about, about your argument? Remarkably little. I've been expecting pushback, but for the most part, people seem ready to accept it. Surely there will be pushback at some point. I, you know, I had one, so far of the really many discussions and reviews, I think I've really only been attacked once uh, in a way that I expected to be attacked much more. Um, I don't know what that tells us, um, but, you know, I may not get off scot-free in weeks, months, years to come. <laughs> well, good luck on that. All right, thank you very much. That was James Whitman, author of Hitler's American Model, United States and the Making of Nazi Race Law, published by Princeton University Press. He's also professor of foreign and comparative law at Yale. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. on a short elevated period from Wire's latest album, Silver Lead, released at the end of March. The title refers to the two ways you can solve problems with money or guns. Next, Alex Gorovich. The Boston Review, bostonreview.net on the web, has a roundtable on the right to strike. It's organized around an essay by James Gray Pope, Ed Bruno, and Peter Kelman, the first a law professor, the second two veterans of the labor movement, on the decline of the right to strike and the role of U.S. labor law in the weakness of the working class today. That essay plus a dozen responses. Among the respondents was Alex Gurevich, who's been on Behind the News a couple of times before. Since I liked his response best of all the pieces in the forum, I gave him a call. Alex is an assistant professor of political science at Brown and is working on a book on the history of the strike in the U.S. 
Alice Gurevich. There's a piece in uh, Boston Review, uh, or on the Boston Review website, to which you, uh, among others, responded, Alex. Uh, and its argument uh, is uh, that uh, the U.S. labor movement is facing very many deep structural problems, uh, and uh, U.S. labor law is very constraining. And what we need to do is turn the labor movement into a rights-based movement. I'm not quite sure what that means. Reminded me of a famous quote from Marx, uh, which you uh, filled me in on the exact wording. Uh, so let's start with that. What, what, what was that all about? What did Marx have to say? There's a great passage in volume one of Capital where Marx says, between equal rights, force decides. And what he has in mind there is the conflict over the working day between capital and labor. And he's basically saying each side on the terms of capitalist morality have a legitimate argument to make about from the capitalist standpoint, like the workers have to show up at an average level of ability, being able to work efficiently. They can't show up drunk and hung over to work. And on the other hand, workers, they just have an instrumental relationship to work. They want to live their lives and enjoy their lives. And so they have a reasonable understanding as well of what it takes to kind of how hard they should have to work and how much they should get paid so they can live their lives. I think Marx's point is there's just no principle within capitalist morality that establishes who's right. And so what matters instead is force. And a lot of capital, I think, is an analysis of how workers get forced into relationships of exploitation. I think what's happening with Pope and this, the James Gray Pope and, and the other authors of this piece is they're picking up on a slightly different thing, which is that... American labor law is enormously constraining. It outlaws all kinds of mass class-based solidaristic actions. So sympathy strikes are, are illegal. Most secondary boycotts are illegal. Mass pickets are illegal. Sit-down strikes are illegal. The way in which unions get elected forces a very conservative organization, form of organization onto, onto unions. And so what they're picking up on is just looking at labor law, it is extraordinarily biased against any kind of mass-based labor movement. And one thing we, we need to do, or that needs to be done, is to challenge the way existing labor law works by coming up with a different way of reading the law, and in particular, the Constitution and what it permits. You begin your piece by contrasting uh, the, uh, the relative strengths of uh, 40,000 Verizon technicians who went on strike uh, a while back and you know, areas that people pay a lot of attention to, but the workers are in a very weak position. You know, Amazon warehouse workers, retail workers, uh, fast food workers. Uh, talk about that uh, contrast. So here's the, here's the nub and why the issue that we're talking about here isn't really just a question of, of the law, which is in the labor market, you can imagine difficult to replace workers who maybe because they're relatively high skilled or specialized. So baseball players, doctors, professors, high end software engineers or programmers for that segment of the labor market, which tends to be the best off workers for them to go on strike with some reasonable chance of success. All they have to do is refuse to work. And because they're hard to replace, they can slow production or stop production. And they've got a pretty good chance of winning a strike or forcing employers to renegotiate terms. But the thing is, for the majority of workers in areas like service, transportation, basic industry, agriculture, healthcare, people like Amazon workers or home health aides or uh, Walmart retail workers or fast food preps at, you know, at McDonald's, they are relatively easy to replace. And so if they want to go on strike and have a reasonable chance of success, it's not enough for them just to refuse to work. They also have to use some coercive strike tactics that prevent either managers from replacing them or that prevent replacement workers from taking their jobs or in some other way prevent the work from getting done. And that means things like sit-down strikes, which are like occupations of the workplace, or mass pickets, or even something like sabotage, although let's just let's bracket sabotage for now since it's more controversial. But mass pickets and sit-downs, which are nonviolent, um, but coercive because they just force either people to not enter a workplace or they take over the workplace. Now, the thing about these kinds of tactics is they violate the law because they violate the property rights of managers. They violate the freedom of contract and the freedom of association of all kinds of rules about managerial authority and freedom of contract of replacement workers and, and, and things like that. But um, they're necessary. These are tactics that are necessary if these kinds of workers who are the worst off workers to have some reasonable chance of success. Otherwise, they have just about no way of slowing down or stopping production, no way of forcing employers to renegotiate terms. 
So if we want the worst off workers to have a right to strike that has any meaning to them, we have to say that they sh that right to strike includes the power to use some kinds of coercive strike tactics, like traditionally the mass picket and, and the sit-down. Your point is not that this is just against American labor law, but it really goes against the grain of bourgeois law in its entirety. Is that, is that your point? So that's it. So this is the thing is, as bad as American labor law is, that doesn't get to the depths of the ways in which these coercive strike tactics really challenge basic class relationships and widely shared understandings of property rights and freedom of contract and other basic liberties. And it, and it, and it does so for a number of reasons. So even if American labor law were more permissive, or even to dramatically change American labor law, you'd have to argue and convince people that the basic economic relationships in society were deeply oppressive, that class relationships are deeply oppressive, which means the existing distribution of control over property is itself wildly unjust and unfair, which it is, that it's a way of forcing some people to work for others, to work for others in workplaces that are deeply authoritarian and oppressive, and that leads to distribution of income that just reproduces these, these class-based relationships. To do that, you have to do more than convince people that the Constitution might formally permit a different interpretation of the right to strike. I think you have to, you have to more openly contest the basic terms of the economy. And one problem with trying to say, well, all you need to do is reinterpret the Constitution is it kind of undersells the task. And it, I think, gives a misleading impression of the kind of conflict that you're in. You're not just in a conflict over the interpretation of a document, but you're in conflict with some of the basic understandings of what property is for. It should be distributed just for the sake of maximizing growth and permitting wild inequalities and also being the basis for saying that managers have a wide zone of discretion uh, to command their workers to do all kinds of things. Or do we think that's just fundamentally oppressive, in which case we need to really rethink what owners of productive property are allowed to do, who should own what kinds of property, what kinds of freedom people should have, the role of work. Not to mention that you also, if you end up thinking that these class relationships are deeply oppressive and that workers have a right to engage in quite militant and disruptive strike tactics to resist it, like mass pickets and sit-downs, you're also arguing that for mass civil disobedience that challenges the authority of the state itself, I think that's the right way to think about it, but it's much more vertiginous. It's much more based on an open conflict view of what the politics of these relationships are like, rather than the view that we just have the right interpretation of an already existing consensus, which we call the Constitution. Now, something that Marx wrote a lot about, and it so deeply pervades our common sense, is that market exchange is a free exchange, and that employers are entitled to a fair profit. Uh, that workers are entitled to a fair wage. And those notions of free exchange and fairness are just so deeply ingrained to us that it's kind of hard to think otherwise. So we're really taking on the common sense of centuries of bourgeois society here. Yeah, we are. But it doesn't mean that the view that I'm arguing for is actually wildly outside the common sense. I think the common sense is basically contradictory because the common sense is the point of the economy is freedom and prosperity. And then it's just assumed or it's, it's now the settled view that the way you get freedom and prosperity is by having open market exchanges under the current distribution of property and under existing property rules. And it's the second part that's false. I think you can draw on the already existing settled view that the basic purpose of the economy is freedom and prosperity and to argue that actually this economy is deeply oppressive. And if you can show, which I think it isn't incredibly hard to do, that there are just overlapping ways in which this actually existing market economies are oppressive, then you have a way of drawing on something that people already believe to argue against something else they might already believe. You might turn out that they don't believe it as strongly as we all assume maybe they do. I mean, we have some circumstantial evidence that there's a bit more openness these days for at least talking about things like socialism and social democracy. I would just say that where I would hope that tendency goes is to really, really seize on the point about freedom and point out, look, like it is deeply wrong to have an economy in which some people are forced to work at whatever job they could possibly find, regardless of the social need that it, that it satisfies. Well, there's others who aren't forced to work at all because they just have inherited wealth. They might work, but they're not forced to work. And that's just wrong. 
that's like a deeply oppressive way of organizing and forcing people to work. And then on top of that, they're forced to work in workplaces that are typically deeply authoritarian. I actually think of all the bits of bourgeois morality that are really the, the worst and most obscuring of actual relationships, it's, it's the fact that people just think the workplace is just kind of like a casual product of voluntary private agreements rather than is a site of government and deeply oppressive government. I mean, it's a place where managers enjoy wide swaths of discretionary authority over all kinds of intimate details about how people live most of their waking hours. They can week to week in many places just change scheduling practices, decide who to hire and fire, introduce new technologies, change the meaning of the job, relocate plants. And there's no other major social institution that we allow to be legally structured this way. So like the family is no longer legally a patriarchy. We don't think there's one adult who has wide discretionary unilateral authoritarian rule over the other adult. The consenting parties are held to be legal equals. Likewise, the state is supposed to be, at least in principle, a liberal democratic one in which all those subject to its authority have roughly equal control over it. But the workplace is this kind of quasi-authoritarian kind of anomaly where most workers show up and are just expected to obey. And I think if we start pointing at that in the daily experience of oppression and point to way in which this is not actually a way in which you organize the economy so people can really enjoy the freedoms they ought to enjoy, you're starting to make an argument that isn't so, doesn't put us so outside the common sense. Instead, it uses our common sense to try and draw out a contradiction that people might not be completely or fully aware of or ready to focus their attention on. I'm speaking with Alex Gurevich, an assistant professor of political science at Brown. You're touching on a point that our friend, uh, mutual friend Corey Robin has made, that uh, the left has ceded the discourse of freedom entirely to the right, and we should reclaim it. Yeah, yeah, I wholly agree with that. Uh, I, I agree with that, not just, you know, sometimes people think it's just like an instrumental thing. Like, well, because freedom is such a high value, we should use it to try and persuade people of something we agree to for other reasons. But I don't think that's it. I mean, I think the left historically is supposed to have been the party of emancipation. What is emancipation if it isn't about claiming new freedoms by throwing off forms of oppression and that those freedoms have their value because you claim them through your own efforts? Uh, I've always taken that to be the signature calling card of the left and precisely the part of left-wing movements that the right so thoroughly despises. It's not that it's changing the past per se, but that you're changing what currently exists by challenging certain structures of rule that the conservatives want to uh, keep in place. So, yeah, I, th I think it's, it's got real power and it's a way of also some unifying struggles on the left that sometimes seem very disparate. On the left, sometimes you end up with this kind of, you've got a lot of different isolated separate struggles that seem to be identity specific or, or struggle specific, but which then fails to kind of arrive at, at the language and principles that actually unite them. What could unite something like the struggle for transgender rights, the Black Lives Matter movement, the critique of the financialization of the economy, the critique of the growing inequality of wealth, and um, all of these other movements is that they are part of a shared and collective demand for freedom. But when we don't have the, a clear sense of what's uniting them, then they just look disparate and like you have to choose or, or prioritize rather than see that what could draw them together in a, in a movement in which each finds support from the other because they both they all and ultimately want the same thing is I think freedom uniquely I think it's freedom and parenthetically although it's not too too wide a detour you're working on a book on uh, the history of American labor violence and that whenever we talk about the current situation of unions in this country the the uh, and the, the very weak position that the labor in general is in organized or unorganized that that history of violence is often forgotten or not brought up as part of the conversation just just remind us precisely how violent the history of american management labor relations has been yeah so i should say this so the history of labor violence is part of this uh, a, a bigger project about the right to strike but where the violence of the labor movement really has to be seen in full but I, it's it's sort of one of the pieces of American history that that we forget. I mean, there's there's bits of it. Like everybody knows how extraordinarily violent slavery was, and that's sort of one of the earliest forms in which violence towards workers, you know, slaves were working, took form. And the labor violence throughout, in all its different iterations, was about disciplining and controlling workers and forcing them, trying to prevent them from challenging 
the existing relationships of enslavement and oppression that they face. So, you know, you have these slave raiders and you have extraordinary outbreaks of violence when slaves tried to either flee individually or rise up against the slaveholders. I think that's perhaps in a way, in terms of popular consciousness, that the violence against labor that we are most aware of. But what's what's truly extraordinary is the, the true peaks of violence against labor that that we start seeing after the Civil War, once it becomes an economy not at least nominally based on wage labor. I mean, parts of the labor force were still all but enslaved. But um, starting in about 1870s, when you start getting a real militant labor movement, mass labor movement, so like workers organized in central labor unions in cities or just really militant groups in particular industries like railroads or mining uh, or even places like textiles, you get first you get the militarization of the police. So what happens up until 1870s is employers think that they can break strikes just with their own private security forces or these groups called detective agencies like the Pinkertons. But what happens by the 1870s is in at least some industries, the workers are so large that these private security forces can't win. And so you get the big bourgeoisie suddenly willing to pay taxes for permanent police force. That's an official police force whose function is strike breaking. So this is, we want to know the origins of militarization in the United States. It's when they acquire the role of strike breakers. But even then, sometimes the police weren't enough, and you start getting the use of the National Guard and federal troops. And in these big strike waves that involved hundreds of thousands of workers in 1877, 1886, 1894, and in other big strikes, you actually get federal troops showing up and massacring workers to suppress these large strikes. And almost always the violence of these strikes were either provoked by um, hired agents of the employers or when the military shows up. But every study of the use of the American military shows that the most common use of federal troops between 1877 and 1933, with the one exception of World War I, was strike suppression. Basically, you had running low-grade civil war in America up until basically the New Deal period. And even then, astonishingly, like we think, well, but then they got labor rights, okay. Even then, it's only partially suspended. And that's in part because you still have these massive private militaries. Like in 1939, a Senate commission or House House inquiry found that GM alone contained, had in reserve a private army of 1,200 hired individuals whose only purpose was to instigate violence or beat up labor organizers. And in the South, the Klan was was basically farmed out as one of these strike-breaking groups. And what they would do is like wrap industries like in Birmingham with barbed wire and then put landmines around the factory that organizers didn't know about. So they would just blow up organizers who were trying to like organize black workers in some of these really dangerous industries. And this just goes on and on throughout the period of American peak militancy. So you still have, like in the 1980s, during, which is already the decline, during the Hormel strike, you've got the National Guard basically occupying Austin, Minnesota, suspending quite a few civil liberties in order to suppress the strike. It isn't directly violent. There's nobody killed. But that's because, you know, workers have been beaten down so much by then. People don't quite realize the role that this just extraordinary and sustained violence against workers did in pacification uh, of what used to be a very militant workforce. And with that in mind, how do we turn around the current situation? I mean, what's your, your prescription for reviving uh, the U.S. labor movement? Can it be done under the player present structures? It's not going to come from the labor leadership. And that, that's the thing people know. And it's kind of easy to say. But the flip side is it's not clear that it's going to come from like the it's not clear that, it's, that the radical left has a better argument. The, the problem is at the moment, nobody can plausibly represent the interests of large majorities or large groups of organized workers. Because it seems to me you have two alienated groups. One is the existing labor leadership. And what they do is basically just serve the interests of the already organized workers that they have. And on that, I'm with someone you've had on your show, Jane McAlevey, who says, look, the most important thing is to ask, how are we going to organize the unorganized? And that's just not really something the existing labor leadership has particularly good imagination for, in part because it's really unwilling to engage in sustained militant 
civil disobedient strike action. And it's no surprise, the law kind of is going to create these kinds of very entrenched interests whose power comes from their ability to kind of administer contracts, make deals within the parameters of the institutions. So the question is, well, what do we have outside? And the problem is, you know, the kind of radical organized left, which is sort of left of the Democratic Party, doesn't have any stronger roots in the working class. This is just a notable, noticeable thing. Sort of existing radical left organizations seem to be decent at organizing on campuses, but not in, you know, like the real mass working class sectors, which is where you'd have to be making headway. Uh, now, this isn't this isn't a positive. Thing, it's just a negative answer, which is to say the two places you'd look, which is existing leaders, leadership, or the radical left, which historically had actually been really the militant wing of the labor movement, the Trotskyists who led the general strike of Minneapolis, you know, the Toledo sit-down strikes. These were all run by either Trots, commies, or fellow travelers. But these days, those groups have very little connection to kind of the, a mass working class. Scholarship. So the the only answer I have come up with at the moment is it's not going to happen right away, but one has to at least clear the ground by trying to figure out what are the kinds of arguments that you would want to make both to workers themselves and in the public sphere once you start having these fights. That's not a very satisfying answer, but I really don't have one. <laughs> okay. I, thought... I wish I did, you know. If I, to be honest, if I did, I'd be out there doing it, but I just don't know what it is. All right. Well, I thought you. I was hoping you had the secret, but uh, maybe in a future show. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll definitely get back to you if I've got it. I was Alex Gorovich, an assistant professor of political science at Brown, who's working on a book on the strike. He's also the author of From Slavery to Cooperative Commonwealth, Labor and Republican Liberty, Nineteenth Century, published in two thousand fourteen by Cambridge University Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this more wire. This from their first album released forty years ago, a bit of ex lion tamer. Till next week, bye.